So I think when we think about this, we have to think about it taking away the kind of um, individual dog focus and thinking about it on a population level, on a, on a multi-generational level. These changes crept in slowly in kind of our lifetime terms, but in the blink of an eye in evolutionary terms because of controlled breeding. Welcome to the With a Dog podcast. We're the podcast for the modern dog parent. We interview veterinarians, trainers, pet products, and game-changing pet parents about how you can get the most out of life with a dog. We're your hosts. I'm Carly. And I'm Izzy. In this episode, we are bringing back a friend of the show, Dr. Sean McCormick. You guys loved his previous episode about dog nutrition in season one. So if you haven't already listened, add that to your queue. Yes, definitely. We love having him on. So excited to have him back. Sean is very active and passionate about animal welfare on the whole. And one of those topics being the health problems in purebred or pedigree dogs. We are talking about how breed standards have changed the appearance and genes of many breeds for the worse, as well as the genetic risks and benefits of mixed breed dogs couple of footnotes. Um, Sean is based in the UK, so some of the vocabulary is a little bit different. Um, pedigree is um, pure breed or purebred, um, and mongrel meaning mixed breed, just in case anyone is wondering. Yeah. So mongrel and mutt basically mi- means the same thing. Same, same. Yeah. And um, we are keeping this intro super short today, so no life update. But this episode is jam-packed. Uh, we did run over time by about an hour. Apologies. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Sorry about that. But that's just because Sean does such a great job of explaining the background biology of dog genetics. So you really get the full picture of what he's talking about. And a little bit more about Sean. Uh, as we said, he is a passionate advocate for nature and animal welfare. He enjoys engaging others in thoughtful discussions about those topics. He's the head vet and manager of veterinary affairs at Tails.com. He's the founder and chair of the Ealing Wildlife Group. And he's also the awesome host of Sean's Wildlife Podcast, which is all about nature, wildlife, if you're a geek on that kind of stuff, his podcast is perfect for you. Or even if you just want to learn a little bit more about um, wildlife kind of topics, he's an awesome, uh, awesome podcast host as well. So let's let's bring him on. Let's get into it. Sean, thank you for coming back on the podcast with us. And uh, how are you? What's going on? Yeah, all good. Thanks for asking me back. I'm assuming that's a good sign and not like, you know, I was so controversial and, and that last time that like, I'm going to stir <laughs> the pot again or like, <laughs> yeah, we'll get him on and show him up. But yeah, no, happy to be here. Thanks for having me back. Of course, of course. Well, we brought you on to discuss kind of dog genetics, purebred, mixed, mutt, mongrel, all of the those words. I know that you're very passionate about the subject. So I think we're just going to kick it off with our first question. Yeah. What uh, is, a, what 
So, oh, I fucked that up straight away. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, What does pedigree or purebred mean? Yeah, good question. I think um, to kind of start with on this conversation, I'm going to ask listeners to uh, have two rules of engagement. And one is that you're open-minded to think about something that has been drummed into you as fact for, you know, as long as you've been alive of pedigree dogs or pure breeding and, and, and things like that um, are talked about a certain way. But actually, we know a lot more now and there are other ways of thinking about it. And I just like listeners to be like, OK, I can be open minded about reframing what is a pedigree or a purebred dog. And the second thing is I'd ask listeners, please don't take personal offense <laughs> if I talk about some kind of dog owners or some kind of dog breeders or even some breeds of dog, if you relate to that in a certain way, I'm not having a go at you. I'm not having a go at your breed of dog. I'm not having a go at your your dog itself as an individual. I'm talking as a vet who has a real interest in animal welfare and um, pedigree dog breeding and animal welfare really, really do go hand in hand because there's a lot of problems related to the practice of pedigree dog breeding. And it's something I'm really passionate about, Carly, you know that. You've heard me bang on about it so many times. Um, I'm really passionate about it because it's an area I think that um, people's ideas are so ingrained that there's almost a resistance to think about it in a different way. Or, as I say, people immediately jump on the defensive bandwagon and say, no, you're criticizing me. You're criticizing my choice of breed. You're criticizing my dog personally. And it's not that. So to your question, a bit of a ramble, but to your question, what is a pedigree? What is a pure breed? Um, the, the basic definition, obviously, is that it's a an animal of any species that we have controlled in terms of the population of which specimens within that population get to breed. And we've selected the specimens within that population that we wanted to breed based on their characteristics. Now, those characteristics can be physical. So it can be the appearance. It can be the stature. It can be the color or those characteristics can also be um, temperament. You know, we choose a dog that has a, a friendly temperament or a dog that needs to guard because it's got a more territorial aggressive temperament and things like that. So we can choose characteristics of a pure breed that we that almost define the breed. And what we do when we pure breed or, or, or kind of line breed and produce pedigrees um, is we produce a document or a record of the ancestry of that animal, the thing, the individual animal that we're holding in our hands or sitting on our lap, sitting in front of us. And that document is its pedigree. So a pedigree is just a document or a record of who is that dog related to when you trace it back through the generations. And if I was being very um, facetious and a bit tongue-in-cheek and maybe a bit inflammatory, <laughs> I might say that... A pedigree, especially when it comes to pedigree dog breeding, is basically a record of how related your dog is to its relatives. <laughs> because there's a degree of inbreeding that goes with any pedigree lineage because you're constantly breeding like with like with like with like with like. And if you trace it back far enough, especially in breeds that have a fairly small gene pool, you will find that actually closely related animals are being bred together to produce this clonal kind of line that we can predict in terms of temperament or physical appearance. 
kind of sounds like the royal family. It's very like the royal family. <laughs> You're <laughs> red. The royal family is a lineage. They have a pedigree and they only allow people from within the circles of their pedigree lines to, to marry. And oftentimes in, in, in the past, the only people available of high enough wealth or status or um, availability to marry at the time might have been cousins or, you know, distant relatives or even fairly close relatives. And we have seen, it's become a lot more distasteful now, but we do see in pedigree breeding of animals, back crossing or, or line breeding where people are deliberately breeding related animals to fix characteristics. So if something new comes up, for example, in a dairy cow, you know, you get a couple of cows coming through in your herd that produce one and a half times more milk than the rest of the herd. What you might do is you might cross those female calves back to their father to try and fix their genetic lineage or to their grandfather or to their cousin or something. But you might start to pull, pull, pull together or pull out the pool of animals that is, um, producing this new desirable characteristic and you might cross back to a relative to try and create a more stronger genetic fixation of that characteristic in the line and then you start out crossing again and test it and see if it works so there's a there's a degree there's always been a degree of inbreeding or line breeding which is more just not necessarily directly related but closely related individuals being bred together in order to produce the ultimate specimen of whatever you're trying to achieve so it's artificial selection. So you mentioned the pedigree is like the paper, papers or the like ancestry. Is that what it means when you go get a dog from a breeder and it's like, oh, yeah, I have their papers yes. or something like that? And here's my bugbear completely. And here's where I might offend a few people who you know think otherwise. But please just think outside the box and think about this logically. Just because your dog has papers does not mean anything to do with the quality of your dog. It just means that its ancestry has been traced and there's a document or a record of it. It can be a paper or it can be digital, but just because your dog is a pedigree or has papers does not mean that your dog is quality, doesn't mean that your dog won't be prone to genetic disease, doesn't mean that your dog won't have a terrible temperament like that isn't conducive to the lifestyle and, and that you want to give it, doesn't mean that other issues won't crop up even if its parents were healthy. All a pedigree says is we can trace the ancestry of your dog. So from that being a base, a base point, it's really important to kind of lose the snobbery and the elitism around pedigree dogs being best, better, high quality, predictable. There are elements of that within pedigree dogs, but there are awful pedigree dogs and there are high quality pedigree dogs. The fact that it has a pedigree, a piece of paper showing who it's related to, does not guarantee anything. Oh my god, this is going to be this is going to be a whole episode of mic drops. Um, <laughs> okay, <laughs> so I hope I haven't made enemies yet. <laughs> no, no, no. I think this is it's such a great discussion to have. This is why we're having you on. Um, you mentioned basically that we're doing the artificial selection. Does that mean that we're selecting for certain standards? Like I've known I know this the word breed standards, mm. like. Is that what we're selecting for? And then who decides what those standards are? So if you go right back to when dogs became domesticated, right? All wild animals are under the influence of natural selection, evolution. Basically, they're being shaped by um, their environment. 
And if they're not, you know, ultimately adapted to their environment, they're at a disadvantage to their competitors. And the theory is that they tend not to pass on their genes as well because they're not as adapted, they're not as successful. And genetics is a, you know, huge topic and the, the kind of, um, the crux of genetics and how that influences evolution of a species is that there's constantly genetic mutations being kicked out and variation through a male and a female of a species um, mixing their genes and seeing what the outcome is. So you always have random variation popping up in a population. And if that variation is advantageous to the animal or the species or the population in that area, in that unique set of circumstances, then the dominant uh, genetic pool or genetic features of that population are the ones that are most successful and, ge- and, and you get genetic drift. So the classic example that's taught in biology is a species of moth that was um, called the peppered moth. And it was gray and mottled in color. And during the Industrial Revolution in England, um, a small proportion of black or melanistic moths started popping up. Because that was within the genetic variation, the genetic possibilities of that species of moth. Now, in the past, when, you know, before the Industrial Revolution, the moth that was grey and mottled was very camouflaged on the bark of trees. And whenever a black variant popped up, it got eaten by a bird straight away because it was super obvious in the environment. With the Industrial Revolution, there was soot everywhere. And actually, the block, the black variant really did well because it camouflaged better on black sooty walls and trees. And then it became the dominant type within that population. When we talk about dogs and dogs starting to come around um, human settlements over 30,000 years ago in, in various parts of the world, it was a wolf ancestor. It wasn't the grey wolf we know today, but it was an ancestor of both the grey wolf we know today and the domestic dog. And the population of that wolf ancestor that did well and, and started to thrive in association with humans was the one that was inquisitive adaptive to new scenarios, would try new things um, and would take risks and be in closer proximity to us. So eventually we started, we say that, you know, dogs weren't domesticated by us. We didn't go out and steal wolf puppies and start to breed them. Dogs came and domesticated themselves because they had a chance to have shelter, warmth um, and a food supply with our scavenging, kind of scavenging our leftovers. And our, believe it or not, our latrines. They started eating our poop and our, our leftovers in that way. That's mm, I why. Believe it. Lupin that's would. why dogs, <laughs> that's why domestic dogs have, you know, coprophagia in their behavioral repertoire. They eat poop because it was advantageous to them in the past. So what, what happened there was an, a kind of type of natural selection where it favored the dogs that were kind of adaptive and tame and, and would, would try new things. Mm-hmm. Artificial selection kicks in then when we start to select or control the individuals in the population that are allowed to breed and and kind of put forth to the next generation. And artificial selection or breeding is something that is infinitely faster than natural selection because we can we can simply control in a single generation what the dominant genes are going into the next one. So if we saw, if we had a random mutant dog that was like twice as fast as the the other dog or barked twice as loud or was much more scary to wild animals that were trying to feed on our flocks of animals, we said he's our stud dog for the next three years and we're going to put his genes forward and we're going to mate him with all of our neighbor's bitches and we're going to produce 
the ultimate guard dog. And basically we've thrown a very um, strange or kind of uh, rare in nature genetic mutation into the population and we've propagated it massively. Mm-hmm. And over time, that kind of selective breeding has led to, you know, the kind of um, creation of over 350 specific breeds of dog because they were all selected over many generations for slightly different things, whether it was a row, you know, they had a job to do in the early days or whether it was later on companionship or color or pattern or unusual features that attracted attention and maybe became a status symbol. Mm-hmm. Like, in, you know, kind of Chinese emperors and dynasties and things, you know, having lap dogs and very unusual dogs and the appearance of the brachycephalic or flat faced type breeds in ancient kind of Chinese dynasties and things where it was something super unusual and rare that would never survive in nature. But we decided to propagate it because it was a status symbol. So we started to create and again, do not take this personally. This is a biological and scientific term. We started to create mutants and deformities that we found appealing and we started to select those and make those the kind of the ones that got to breed and the ones that, you know, wouldn't have got to breed in nature because they're not adapted to the natural environment. Okay, so that has led to now you said there are like over 350 different breeds and then now there's an actual is there a definition then for each breed? Yes. Yes, that- so that is the breed standard that you've asked. I, I went around about the houses there, sorry. <laughs> but that that's basically how um, how dog breeding became sort of regulated and how dog breeds became defined. Because it may have been that, you know, in, you know, one of the southern states, there was a kind of family of hounds that two, two fam- neighboring families were breeding together as a kind of like little private um, project over the course of their lives. And that made the foundation of, you know, some breed like a blue tick coonhound or whatever. You know, those kind of breeds started somewhere where some guy or some girl said, oh, I've got this cool dog I got from my neighbor up the road. And I know someone in the next town that has this really great dog as well. And he's good for hunting or for flushing game or whatever. Maybe we'll breed them together. And over time, in various parts of the world, these little subpopulations or sub kind of groups of dogs started popping up. And gradually, you know, people got enamored with them or they became popular and they started to spread and they started being disseminated around and shared. And gradually breeds started to become quite defined. And you could identify that that one might be a such and such a coonhound, but that one is a blue tick coonhound. Mm-hmm. And therefore, you have started to have informal breeds coming to the fore. Now, a breed, again, is just a complete man-made construct. We have species in nature, we have breeds in domestic animals. And a breed is basically a, a lineage or a group of animals that meets several requirements um, in terms of kind of appearance, dimensions, size, temperament, whatever. And basically what happened kind of in very recent history, you know, going back just a few hundred years, really, as you started to have breed societies crop up that started to regulate how those breeds were bred and started to keep a pedigree book or a stud book to organize the breeding. And what they did when they formed a breed society and formalized how these breeds were defined and how these breeds were allowed to be registered and uh, and interbreed with each other in a recorded way is they created a breed standard. And 
here's where I'm going to upset some people who believe that a breed standard is an untouchable holy document written in stone. <laughs> it's not. A breed standard is basically it started with someone getting a piece of paper and going, I really like you know, my neighbor's dog's down the road and I've taken some of the pups and I like it. I know there's a guy in the next town that does it as well. Why don't we all get together and start to make our own little, you know, commercial sellable tribe of dogs that perform a certain task. And they wrote to, in order to be deemed a X breed that we've now created, you need to meet these criteria. And they wrote often in very subjective terms, um, the muzzle must be slightly uplifted and proud of the of the stop of the forehead. And really hearty, amazing language about the like, you know, the appearance of this gorgeous dog that they were such fanatics of. And that's how breed standards started. And over time, you know, if it was really subjective, you know, the breed society tweaked it. And they might have said, you know, that um a you know really flowery language like um they have a a puzzled expression. Well, how do you define that? <laughs> how do you read a puzzled expression? You know what? You know? That makes so much sense because I don't, I'm sure a lot of people have seen it, but it's like a video that's circulating the internet that has, this is what a Labrador or an English Bull Terrier is the one that sticks in my mind. This is what they used to look like. And then it yeah. shows them like evolving from you know 100 years to what they are now. And even the English Bull Terrier, I guess, didn't have like the big flat Bing. nose and mm-hmm. it yes. looked like a normal nose. So that makes a lot of sense if it's not well defined. That's how breed standards can change over time, yet stay the same. I don't know. That, I so, know that it makes no sense. but <laughs> No, it does, because two things can happen. The breed standard can be rewritten and the breed standards are, were constantly rewritten and they're still rewritten at some points today. So let's get away from the idea that, oh, but it's the breed standard. That's not an excuse for anything. The breed standard is a living, breathing document that says what it, what a, the population of this breed should look like and what breeders should be aspiring to create when they mate dogs and try and produce new offspring. It's about improve, it should be about improvement of the breed. And we're skipping a little bit ahead, but I would argue that a lot of the problems in pedigree dogs that we have are because People who regulate the breed standard are too stubborn or too proud or too traditionalist to change the writing or the wording in a breed standard. If a breed standard says something like, um, you know, the ratio of muzzle length to forehead depth should be three to one. That's an objective, measurable breed standard that tells breeders if you're producing puppies with a muzzle length to forehead height of two to one, you won't be accepted. It's not a good specimen of the breed. There's no point showing it. There's no point breeding from it. It's not, it's not going to fit our definition of the breed. If a breed standard says, and here's the example of the German Shepherd, at some point in time, the German Shepherd people decided that a gently sloping back was desirable because they liked the look of a gently sloping back, but no one has defined what you mean by gently. So what happened was, and this is where we get genetic creep all the time or genetic drift towards the extreme or the exaggeration, is that breeders who wanted to produce gorgeous German shepherds that would win in the show ring and achieve status and be valuable as breeding animals for the next generation, 
started to take that subjective term, a gently sloping back, and they started selecting the dogs in the litters they produced that had the most sloping back mm. and breeding them with other dogs from their friends who were also involved in breeding German Shepherds who had the most sloping back. And over a very short period of time, because there was aggressive selection for a very sloped back in order to, you know, exaggerate the feature that was written into the breed standard, what we had was a population of German Shepherds that crashed and declined in terms of their spinal health and their hip health because it's an unnatural design. It's not a dog design. It's not a, a, a design that was made by nature. It was very much a deformed design that we decided looked appealing and then we exaggerated it and ultimately the dog suffered. But then, but that's the thing is when you notice that about certain breeds and maybe like, I don't know, maybe you notice it, maybe you say something and then people defend it saying, no, 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 that's what they're supposed to look like. That's the breed standard. And then you're like, but the dog can't walk. I have no. a um, devil's I'm advocate here. note here. Okay. What? So playing devil's advocate. So let's say we like take these breed standards and we put these ratios on there. Would that A, increase a population of dog that is no longer wanted and potentially abandoned? Or would it tighten up and tighten up everything about breeding of that dog and make it better but like but the better wouldn't because i feel like, like the dogs would be healthier but i guess in the meantime once you're going from like the fucked up situation to that would there be like or i can tell by your face sean that you like already have an answer but i'm just playing devil's advocate <laughs> i'm just playing devil's advocate okay um, no i love this question it's great yeah, but so you have these dogs right now. They're not very good. They've got the sloping back. We now put in this ratio. And then in the meantime, from when we have this like terrible specimen to when we have the good specimens, what's going to happen to all of these dogs that don't fit the ratios and the breeders no longer want them? Will that increase animal cruelty, I guess, is what I'm thinking. Yeah. Good question. I think what we need to always have in our minds here and here's where the tendency to jump on, you're attacking me, you're attacking my breed, you're attacking my dog, is no, 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 we're talking about long-term and wide-scale change. We're not talking about all of the corgis with a back longer than X percentage of their entire weight need to be annihilated tomorrow. We're not talking about, you know, welfare of, like, individual dogs or individual dogs not making it or making the cut or being dumped on the street what we're talking about is bringing in gradual change by making sensible changes to the wording of breed standards where we know that the wording of those breed standards is harmful and is um one of the main factors that is kind of um leading people to produce dogs that are destined to suffer because of their physical appearance or because of one of the characteristics in that breed standard so I think when we think about this, we have to think about it taking away the kind of um, individual dog focus and thinking about it on a population level, on a, on a multi-generational level. These changes crept in slowly in kind of, you know, our lifetime terms, but in the blink of an eye in evolutionary terms because of controlled breeding. And we've caused, we've aggressively selected for certain characteristics that were exaggerated and would be 
the ultimate epitome of what it says there in the breed standard. But what we could do is reduce the the kind of um, selection pressure or make it a bit more sensible or say with certain characteristics that really cause suffering and health problems, we have to be completely objective about this and we have to say any dog that doesn't meet this strict criteria in the breed standard isn't one that should be bred from in future. And that reverses the aggressive selection pressure to one that actually selects for the healthiest, most functional dogs out of the population. So suddenly we start getting a a shift. Now, this is all hypothetical because it doesn't happen like this. And that's one of the problems. But we would get a shift in the breeding circles to actually your dog has got way too slopey a back. You know, that's not that's not good for the future of the breed. I'll only I'll only breed with my mate from, you know, that I met at this show because she has dogs that have really straight, gorgeous backs and, you know, are like their original functional German police dog, German Shepherd. Mm-hmm. Now, the obstacle here is, and here's where I'll, I'll make some enemies, is that a lot of breeders are stuck in their ways. And Carly, I think you touched on it by, you know, the, the classic answer when you start to say, oh, you know, that breed or that dog, you know, looks a bit uncomfortable or has really serious rolls or skin folds or whatever. And people go, that's the breed. That's the breed standard. That's the characteristic mm-hmm. of the breed. That is a place of sometimes ignorance, like not knowing any better. But that is the defensive, closed-minded attitude that I talked about at the start, which kind of just says and makes an excuse and, and absolves oneself of any responsibility by saying, but that's the way the breed standard is written. You know, that's the, the Bible of, of dogs that's written in stone. I can't change that. That's how God intended dogs to be. No, it's not. It's a piece of paper that was started in a village by someone who found this kind of lineage of dogs he wanted to breed. It can change. It is not a, a document that is, you know, a legal binding contract. But you get this traditionalist, close-minded view of, oh, well, if we breed, let's go with one of the, let's go with a bloodhound. Well, if we breed a bloodhound with less jowls and shorter ears and he won't be a bloodhound anymore because that's what makes a bloodhound a bloodhound. Okay, but lots of bloodhounds have problems with the amount of loose skin mm-hmm. and with their eyes and da da da. Can we just make them a bit less crazy bloodhoundy and just make them kind of medium bloodhoundy and yeah. maybe review yeah. a few of those things and only breed from the dogs that don't require surgery to have, you know, pounds of flesh removed from their cranium? Those are not the dogs we should be breeding from because ultimately those are the dogs that will produce dogs that suffer because of how they look. So changing the breed standard is a very simplistic and logical way to go about it. But unfortunately, there's so much resistance to ever changing breed standards. So um, who who's behind it all? Who's behind the breed standard? Two groups of people. So one are the regulators. Sorry. We're just sorry. Sorry. <laughs> My wire is going haywire. There we go. Good. So two groups of people, I suppose, are behind the breed standards and controlling the breed standards. One is the regulators. Who who writes the breed standards and who controls them and who judges them? That tends to be bodies like the Kennel Club. So the American Kennel Club where you are, the UK Kennel Club where I am. They write the breed standard. They can rewrite the breed standard if they want to. Um they also control the kind of show scene and have a big influence there where, um, you know, their members are judging dogs based on the breed standard. 
the second group, I suppose it's three. So the second group is the judges that are awarding dogs in the show ring. And the show ring has a lot to do with this mm. support of the definition of the best. And here's where the snobbery and the elitism pedigree comes in. Oh, well, my dog is a Crufts show winner. And he's got an amazing pedigree because lots of the dogs in his pedigree were show winners. Well, I would say again, just because he's won in the show doesn't mean he's a quality dog. In fact, a lot of dogs that win in shows end up having health problems later on because they win their rosettes or their medals when they're very young and we don't know what comes later. And the third group then is the breeders themselves that have this almost like ultimate resistance to ever questioning what their breed could be if they change their ways a little bit. Mm-hmm. And there there are great breeders out there, but there is an undeniable element of the breeder community that do not want to be questioned, do not want to be told what to do, reject science, reject, you know, very obvious welfare concerns of veterinary organizations and welfare organizations and say, that's our breed and that's how they're meant to look. And this stubbornness to actually say, yeah, but that might be how you think they're meant to look. But this dog breed has existed for thousands of years. You're only around for 80 and you have a chance to change things for the better for your breed. It'll still be a bulldog or it will still be a bloodhound in the, for the next generation, but it might be a healthier version of it if you start to be less extreme and, st- and start losing this obsession with chasing what the breed standard says now and exaggerating all of those features. Because for a lot of dogs, it causes severe, you know, physical problems or even temperament problems. It's so interesting. What I'm taking away from what you're saying, like two things have kind of come to mind. One is the extreme part. And I I mean, this is not just an American thing, but but I feel like sometimes it is in the American culture. More is more kind of idea Mm, and um i was actually just listening to a podcast this morning about like keto and intermittent fasting and and about how people take it to the extreme and then it is no longer a healthy you know lifestyle and it's not sustainable and blah 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 and but i just feel like that's you know you hear gently sloping back and people go oh well mine is the most sloping therefore it's the best and And that's that's I don't know. I think that's just really interesting. And maybe it's just a, a humanity thing, not just American. I don't want to, you know, like it's, say it's just a, that. But and it, it goes back to, you know, the Chinese dynasties and, and emperors dogs, you know, in the Far East and things where it's in human nature to want what's rare and unusual and exaggerated and extreme because anything that's rare in nature becomes valuable. And this is where this started. You know, if if your neighbor up the road when you were, you know, a a farmer, if your neighbor up the road had a bull that was fairly exotic and no one else had that type of bull and it produced calves that were infinitely more productive than the calves that you produced, that was a very desirable thing. Um, But it didn't come around very often. So the genetics of that thing became super desirable. And we're seeing the the modern day uh, version of that that we're seeing in dogs is we're seeing and I'm going to like pull no punches here. We're seeing absolute monstrosities of dogs being advertised on Instagram for tens of thousands of dollars. Mm-hmm. And I'm specifically talking about your exotic bullies and things like that that are totally deformed, completely destined to suffer 
struggling for breath, squished up faces, top heavy, you know, splayed out elbows. Um, they look like little English bulldogs on steroids. And, you know, they're dressed up in chains and, you know, they've got a brand and graphics that, you know, make the owners look really bloody tough and street. And it's like these dogs are, you know, they're selling the genetics. They're like, little king is going to go for stud next month. And first time offer is only 25 grand to let that little king breed your bitch. And it's like the subculture of idiot breeding dogs so extreme that they look like little toads. They don't look like dogs anymore. They're so mm-hmm. deformed and they can't even be, you know, given birth to naturally. They're, they're being birthed by cesarean section. Um, again, vet, high vet bills, high puppy prices, but we've gone to such extremes in some quarters where again, rarity and things that are unusual are super desirable. They're status symbols. They command a high price and ultimately the dog welfare comes way down on the list in terms of concern. I just want to, um, circle back very quickly just about the um the like kennel clubs yeah are there any medical professionals in the kennel clubs or like the deciders yeah is is there a veterinarian who's saying that's wrong yes in okay so there are normally um i i don't know the ins and outs of the american kennel club i know a bit about the UK Kennel Club, and there are normally um, veterinary professionals involved, but there are also, you know, people who have been involved in the Kennel Club all their lives, and I'm going to be careful what I say here, but really, really traditionalists, and there are ethics committees, and there are breed health schemes and certain things that the Kennel Clubs do, but if I had to say, you know, in broad brush strokes of like what I think of those ventures um a lot of them are not getting results fast enough and a lot of them are just seen to be play, paying lip service to public concern or pressure or vet, the veterinary pressure within the the organization oh yes we are addressing you know um hydro syndromalia in um cavalier king charles because we're now monitoring how many of the population get that that health condition um but are you doing anything about their heart disease. Well, no, currently there's no scheme to monitor heart disease in Cavalier King Charles Spaniels. Well, why not? Because virtually every Cavalier King Charles Spaniel will have a heart murmur by the age of eight, in the UK at least. Mm-hmm. It's like you can be seen to be doing things for kind of public PR, but you're, if you're not achieving health improvements in the dogs, and if you're not addressing the ultimate root cause of some of the problems, which is the breed standard still says breed them like this in this exaggerated way, then ultimately it's pie in the sky and all you're doing is basically a a PR spin. Um, You know, there are great people working within kennel clubs, uh, but there's also an inherent problem within some of them of being, we're above criticism, we are traditionalist because we don't want to ruin the hundreds of years of breeding we've put into this specimen of perfection right in front of us. And it's, it's a pride thing. I mean... It's going to be hard to go to someone and say, well, you've bred this species or this breed all your life. I think it needs to be radically changed. I think everything you've done is wrong to arrive at this point. That's a hard pill to swallow for someone who's dedicated their life and loves the breed, but is kind of addled by this brainwashing that the breed standard is the ultimate goal of perfection. And it's like, it's not. 
It's so interesting what you're saying with the PR scheme, too, because that was my thought earlier with what you were saying about breed standards, um, was that, one, they were focusing on all these almost like positives. You know, they say, oh, because if I were to actually give a description of Lupin, purebred American foxhound, I'd be like, yes, gorgeous, regal, you know, this is the ratio of nose to tail, the blah, blah, blah. And I'd also be like, um, rampant food allergies and ridiculously yeah. sensitive stomach, <laughs> environmental allergies, prone to anxiety, like all these other things. And so it seems like these breed standards, they're just, they're cultivating the positives. So it's like, maybe you get that German Shepherd with this gently sloping back, but that same German Shepherd also has, um, you know, I don't know, like anxiety as well. Yeah. And then, and so you're breeding these two kind of things together and, I don't know. I just think that's really interesting of the PR part of it. So to do with the kind of PR health things that the kennel clubs roll out. So let's say the, um, the brain disease, I can't say it in Cavaliers. (laughs) The ringohydromyelia. Yeah. I screwed it up the first time. So don't worry. I'm not even going to attempt it. That's not it. (laughs) I'm just going to say the brain thing for the listeners who don't know. Protruding from their skull. Yeah. Yes. The brains of Cavaliers are, correct me if I'm wrong, they're too big for their skulls, essentially. And it can cause them to have extremely painful symptoms. And it's just generally not a very nice disease. But anyway. So you have this health condition um, that now the breeders are testing for, but not the heart one. They're mm. not they're not testing for heart disease. They're only testing for this brain disease. Yeah. So, are there other breeds out there where they have um, health conditions that are widely known to the veterinary community, but are not being tested for because the kennel clubs are saying there isn't an issue. Yeah, there's loads of different variations on this and there's loads of things it brings up. Um, there's certainly lots of, if you name me almost any pedigree dog breed, um, I might be rusty on some, but almost guaranteed I can list you a few diseases that that breed is inherently genetically predisposed to. And it's something that, you know, dog people and the dog community don't talk about. They talk about um, things like you know, let's get controversial. We talked about nutrition last time I was on the podcast. People are like, oh, our dogs are getting cancer because of food and kibble is evil and the big pet food industry is throwing all sorts of crap into our dog's food and that's why they're getting ill and da 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 And people then are saying, you know, my dog is, you know, this breed and she had a vaccine reaction and it must be the vaccine's fault. And it's like, no, 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 hang on. We have royally screwed up our dog's health because we've bred them with pedigrees. We have consistently line bred them to have no genetic variation, to have none of the natural selection forces that that kind of shape the population into the healthiest, most adapted population. We breed from the runts of the litter. You know, teacup chihuahuas and Pomeranians are actively selected as the cream of the crop because they're cute on Instagram and will fit in the teacup and people say, oh my God, they're adorable. Those are not the dogs from a litter that would survive to breed if they were in the wild. Those are the runts. Those are the the weakest. And we're constantly selecting for dogs that really aren't that much, that good quality, you know, or passing on healthy genes to the next generation. 
Um, that's where artificial selection and, and, and breeding falls down because ultimately our dogs, domestic dogs and pedigree dogs in particular, are getting more and more unhealthy and it's to do with genetics and breeding. It's not to do with the vaccine. It's not to do with what you're feeding them unless you're feeding them absolute crap. But, you know, pet nutrition has come on in leaps and bounds and, and it, people criticize, you know, kibble or processed dog food or complete, you know, dry dog food. Um, I always say, where is the discussion or the acknowledgement that millions and millions of dogs over many generations absolutely thrive and do well and live till they're 15 to 18 years of age, depending on their breed, on dry kibble food? Mm-hmm. The argument doesn't stand up because most dogs don't have health problems in their, you know, don't have health problems in their life and are fed on dry food. So the argument that if you feed dry food to your dog, it's going to like destroy its health doesn't stand up. The health problems we're seeing coming through in dogs are by and large to do with the fact that we don't have healthy populations of dogs anymore because we're lion breeding them. And I think to your point, Izzy, about, you know, are, are enough, um, health schemes available or are people aware of health problems and the kennel clubs are just ignoring them. I think a lot of the time there's just this acceptance that, oh yeah, that's part of the breed predispositions. So you will see on kind of kennel club documentation, what are the disease predispositions of each breed of dog? And it will have a list of them. But in the show ring, and going back to your point, Carly, on like, you know, what's happening in the show ring, that dog a dog is in a show ring, you know, a few times through the various rounds of the show and it's winning. It's winning based on appearance. Mm-hmm. And the bulk of every breed standard is about the physical description of what the dog should look like. So when we're only selecting really dominant, predominantly for the appearance of the dog and what it looks like running around a show ring or being inspected for two minutes by a 70 year old judge that has judged this breed of dog all his life. <laughs> then that's not a good good way to select who's going to be the dominant breeder in the next generation. Because what happens then is, you know, that dog, male dog, entire, they have to be entire because the genetics are really important. You're not going to put a neutered dog up on the show ring and then go, damn, we shouldn't have neutered him because now he's worth loads of money. You're going to put that dog up. The 70-year-old judge is going to roll out, have a look at the dog. And I'm being a little bit of a dick here, to be honest. But... <laughs> You know, that judge is going to come out and he's going to cup the dog's balls and he's going to shove his chin up and he's going to have a look at his teeth and he's going to like, you know, poke and prod him and, you know, have a quick look at him. And he's going to say, that's a great specimen. I've never seen a good, a good a dog as good as that. I'm going to award you with a first prize. And do you know what happens with that dog, which is probably maybe 12, 15, 18 months of age? He gets a good first. lay. It gets every lay. It gets every lay for the next three years. <laughs> and it pollutes the gene pool entirely with its genes because it's the desire, it's the, you know, the pin-up dog for that breed. And every owner of a bitch that wants to um, breed with him comes to him. And basically he sires, depending on the size of the, you know, if it's a rare breed that only has seven breeders in the country, that dog can do ter- terrific damage in terms of breeding every bitch for the next year, season. Mm-hmm. Because what he does is he creates a genetic bottleneck where he pollutes the entire gene pool of the puppies born in the following year or, or 18 months or two years with his genes, which have not been proven because he's a young dog. He might get, if he's a dachshund, for example, he might get a slip disc in his back age three or four or six when his show career has ended. But he might have already fathered 
indirectly 125,000 dachshunds. Oh my god. Well, you know. So I thought that's what like the slip disc thing or the spine g- degeneration in dachshunds or um cancer, you know, that's in goldens or bone density yeah. in in uh, Italian greyhounds, uh, like or we discussed. Or osteosarcomas in Rottweilers. Or yeah. The list is endless. Yeah. Exactly. I thought all of those, uh, a reputable breeder, responsible, responsible breeder would health test for those things and then say, like, here's the, the health testing proving that my dogs are do not have this issue. Like, when they're puppies. Like, how does that health testing work then, I guess? So health testing isn't a guarantee because you always have, again, the the nature of genetics is that you have variation and you have the ability of any gene pool to throw up variants of the genes or varying expressions of the genes within that gene pool. So, for instance, golden, no, let's use a a physical health test. Let's use um, elbow dysplasia in Labradors, Labrador retrievers. So elbow dysplasia is a genetic um, inherited disorder of the elbow, um, and it is um, made up of three different deformities of certain parts of the elbow that make the elbow joint. So it can be a, a, a weakness in the cartilage in one area. It can be an ununited segment of bone where it's not fully formed and stuck together, and and one part of it breaks off. Or it can be what's the other one? Um, yeah, another defect basically with one bone where it slots into another. So this this syndrome of three different uh, problems is is called elbow dysplasia, and it means that young growing dogs often get severe, um, painful elbow defects that cause serious lameness, and often need surgery. Um, and the same with hips. We've all heard of hip dysplasia. You know, you can score these things, or you can screen for them. So just saying, my dog's health tested. That isn't a, a one size fits all guarantee that the puppies are going to be healthy. It's not always a great predictor of what's going to happen, depending on the breed and depending on the degree of kind of um, genetic component to it. Um, and it's also something that, you know, can be done and can have all the good kind of scores and signs that, you know, we're going to be getting a healthy puppy here. But later on, through chance and nature and nurture, the puppy still um, gets the problem because it was genetically inherent to, to have problems with it anyway. So health testing doesn't always um, tell you much. And some health testing is, you know, oh, it looks really good because they've done seven different health tests, but some of them are for very rare conditions. And yeah, you will pay a premium for a breeder that has health tested both parents, um, but the likelihood of of your dog or your puppy inheriting one of those was low anyway, and just looks good and it's kind of an added thing on the price tag. Now, that is not to say, and I'm not saying whatsoever, that health testing is not a good idea. It's a great idea. And it's one tool in a breeder or a kennel club's um, kit to improve the health of the breed in general over time. And again, we're talking about generations. And if there was more enforcement of who is allowed to breed dogs and what standards do they need to meet to breed dogs, then we would be, we'd be sorted. But unfortunately, I don't want to lay all the blame at, you know, responsible or registered kennel club breeders feet there are problems there and i think a lot of it is stubbornness and traditionalism and uh, a lack of willingness to really crack on and do something quick and change the breed standards and implement health schemes but there's also a huge problem of backyard breeders 
or if you want to term them irresponsible breeders, you can have very responsible backyard breeders and the absolute opposite as well. But it's we're talking about dog populations as a whole. And actually, you know, to be fair and to give credit to the Kennel Club Assured Breeder Schemes that are doing all the health testing, most of those breeders absolutely love their breed and do want to improve the breed over time and do want to produce quality offspring. And they're not overbreeding their dogs and they're not producing too many litters and they're doing it well. But they, they're releasing loads of puppies into the wild of the general public who are going to go, well, I paid, you know, £3,000 for my dog, so I'm not going to neuter him or spay her. I'm going to have a litter of puppies because there's money in this. Mm-hmm. And then you get genetic creep and genetic problems because there's no control over who's breeding with who and there's no consideration. It's just, I want a litter of puppies. So I don't think that health schemes are necessarily the big issue here. I think it's about, you know, how what we want to breed in general and what we accept as normal for dogs um, because it's always been that way or it's crept that way over time. But also, what are the controls on breeding dogs? Anyone can just breed dogs and produce the likes of these mutant exotic bullies that are going to have arthritis in their elbows age three because they're completely deformed. Mm-hmm. You know, it does, there's, it's a huge topic and there's so many um, touch points where we can control it and regulate it better. But um, at the moment, it's a mess. Um, but I think the fundamental thing for me, if we're talking about pedigree breeding and and that is the changing of the breed standards and what we deem as normal for a certain breed needs to change. Yeah, I think we can all agree on that. Hey everyone, as you may be able to tell, we don't have any ad spots or sponsors right now. Uh, We're doing all of this out of pocket, so if you're enjoying this episode so far, please take the time to subscribe, give us a five-star review. It really helps our podcast so much and it makes it way easier for others to find us too. So going to the genetic creep that we were talking about, people just breeding, not really knowing what they're doing. Um, so let's talk about the flip side. Let's talk about mixed breeds. Um, there is a certain opinion that people think that mixed breeds are the healthiest dogs. Um, is that a true opinion or is this like genetic creep just widespread across the board? Okay, so in like in physiology and biology terms, um, hybrid hybrids and hybrid vigor um, and complete crossbreeds, mutts, mongrels, mixed breeds, whatever you want to call them, Mm -hmm. that have loads and loads of genetic variation and lots of diverse um, DNA from various breeds are inherently going to be more vigorous and healthy as a population, not necessarily as an individual dog, but as a population group level than a very closed genetic pool that has been line bred for generations and has less variation or can withstand, you know, um, certain things cropping up within that gene pool. Mm-hmm. So yes, in, in biological terms, the, the term we use is heterosis, which is basically hybrid vigor. Whenever you have lots of crossbreeding and mixed gene pools, um, you tend to get more resistance to disease. You tend to get larger litter sizes. You tend to get more vigorous growth rates, you, you know, and this is across all species. Um, so heterosis is a good thing. So, you know, the, the old adage that like, you know, a mongrel is healthier and will live longer than a pedigree dog. It's broadly true, but it's true at the population level. And it's also, 
you know, case specific of like, what are we defining as a mongrel or a mixed breed versus, right. you know, the pedigree breed population we're, we're comparing it to. So what we see a lot now is these new breeds being, being made up. And again, let's go back to the fact that they are breeds because they're being defined by the people that are breeding and buying them as a defined subpopulation of dogs. So the Puritans and the pedigree dog breeders who are registered with the Kennel Club will say, a cockapoo isn't a breed. It's not a registered breed. It's no such thing. Well, it is because it started the same way as your Samoyed did or your, you know, Siberian Husky did or your miniature Dachshund did. It started with a group of dogs that had similar genetic um, likenesses and were all being bred together to produce a fairly defined end product. That's how a breed starts. And whether it's registered with the Kennel Club or not is pie in the sky. Um, but those crossbreeds are often, you know, the, the, the kind of traditional assumption that, you know, crossbreeds, mixed breeds are healthier than pedigrees. That's used as a marketing tool or a claim, a fairly bogus claim for these designer crossbreeds or marketable crossbreeds that are cropping up now. The mixing of two defined pedigree dog breeds to produce a crossbreed puppy that has a cutesy name and fetches a high price doesn't mean it's healthier because actually what can happen is that litter of puppies can inherit both sets of genetic problems from each of the pedigree parents. It's not necessarily, that's a very simplistic and single generation crossbreeding that doesn't confer that it will be a healthier animal in the end. So those are for the the designer breeds that you were saying. Like, so it's like the miniature Australian Labradoodles or the Pomsky, yeah, the Multipoo. Oh, yes, the yeah. Multipoo, the Pomsky, the the Jug, the you know the Puggle. Um, there's the, case by case. Let's let's compare. Like, is a Multipoo, a Maltese and a miniature poodle that comes from a crappy puppy farm that's churning out loads of cute little white fluffy teddy bear puppies, washing the shite off them and selling them in a shop window in a pet shop. Are those dogs healthier than a Maltese pedigree or a pedigree miniature poodle? Probably not, because there's probably been no thought put into which parents. It's just churn out as many puppies as you can and sell them. That is a a, a money-making racket, an operation. Mm-hmm. Um, is a Is a puggle... Or a jug, so a pug crossed with a beagle, or a pug crossed with a Jack Russell, inherently healthier than a pedigree dog or a pedigree pug. I would argue, yes, it bloody is. It doesn't matter almost how it's been bred. The very fact that it's been bred with a long-nosed, long-muzzled dog to cross with the pug means that the offspring are inherently more functional as a dog because they can breathe yeah. better yeah. than a, an extreme brachycephalic. And here's where, you know, let's talk, we talked, touched on it earlier about extremes. I always talk about brachycephalic dogs, the flat faced dogs, uh, because they're, they're one of the groups of dogs that have the highest welfare issues and the, the most flawed design that we've created for them because we have exaggerated them to such a degree that they can't even function as dogs anymore. And here is where I'll have the pug and bulldog owners really hating me for for bringing this up or for saying this. Again, think outside the box. Don't take it personally, but look at the bigger picture. We have deformed the skull of these dogs to such a point they no longer have a muzzle. A muzzle is a feature of the canid family, the dog family that makes dogs dogs. 
and it is a functional piece of tissue that allows a dog to inhale. It's an obligate nasal breather. It inhales air through its nose. It, that air passes over all of these intricate little bones and capillary blood vessels within the nasal chamber, which cools the air on the way in. And then the dog breathes the air out by panting and the, the process of evaporation causes it to lose heat. What we've done is we've effectively amputated the muzzle of some of the extreme brachycephalic breeds like pugs, French bulldogs, English bulldogs through selective breeding by gradually, gradually, gradually going, I want a shorter face, a shorter face. I breed shorter face, shorter face, shorter face, shorter face. And gradually I'll end up with a dog where its nose is level with its eyeballs because we've compressed the skull so much. I would say, and I, I always say, I don't hate pugs. I don't hate bulldogs. I love all dogs, but I really hate what we've done to some of them. And that's not a personal insult to the breeders. I think all of these things have crept in gradually and it's very hard to step back and look at the bigger picture when you've been immersed in it for many generations and you love the breed and you want to be protective of the breed. But ultimately, if you look at it objectively from, from an outside point of view and look at what we've done over the course of time to these dogs, you can't deny that we've gone too far. When a dog can't even cool itself and dies of heat stroke from moderate exercise on a warm day, that's that's you know a sin it's it's not uh, something that's acceptable in society we need to go backwards and i would say breeding a pug with an, any other breed of dog that has a muzzle and a normal canine anatomy is an infinite improvement on the pug design i couldn't controversial. agree more no yeah. controversial no. i know but sorry we've gone too far with these and these are extreme brachycephalic so lots of dogs are brachycephalic Boxers, cavaliers, shih tzus, they're all brachycephalic, but let's categorize them. We can have moderate or mild brachycephalism in dogs and rabbits and cats. We're seeing it creep in because, we, because brachycephalism is a feature that we find adorable and cute and it stimulates our desire to nurture because it looks like a human infant. That's the reason we have this nurturing reaction to brachycephalic animals. Um, because they're neotenized, they're infantilized, they look like primate infants. But the extreme brachycephalic dogs like the pug, the English bulldog, the French bulldog, we've gone way too far. And the breed standard specifies all of those features of the face that, that lead them to look the way they are now. And people are taking it into their own hands. The Germans are producing a line of pugs outside of the kennel club. They're not registered, but they're called MP or V pugs. And they're going back to what a pug looked like in the kind of 18th and uh, 19th century where it had a muzzle. Mm -hmm. That's an infinite improvement. Why doesn't the kennel club adopt a gradual step by step that says over the next 15 years, we intend to put three centimeters onto the muzzle of a pug? What harm is there? It'll still be a pug. It's just a different definition of a pug that we have today. It just means they can breathe. And I think that's a win for everyone involved. Yeah, yeah I think... And I think we will probably try to have an episode specific on specifically speaking about the brachycephalic breeds and how we've mm -hmm. gotten to the point, the medical like side of it and everything as well. But I think it's interesting too, you know, we've talked a lot about the breeders and the governing body, you know, who creates the breed standards yeah. and all of that. But it's also, you know, I think we need to look into ourselves a little bit too, where maybe you grew up with pugs or german shepherds and and that's you love the breed you that is your breed you want that type of dog for the rest of your life great fine 
but you don't because you were almost like indoctrinated into pugs can't breathe then you believe like no 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 that's just how they are that's that's normal for a pug yeah and so then you as a dog owner go out and seek seek that out because you think it's normal because you're like no no no, that's what pugs do they this is this is normal and and i think it's like we (laughs) we need to have you know we need to hold ourselves as dog parents uh, to a certain level of responsibility as well to Mm -hmm. seek out improvements in the breed because at the end of the day we are the consumers like i don't want to put it i don't like to phrase it like that but if you ask for like the supply and demand if you ask for the supply to be improved hopefully those controlling bodies will then you know that will Mm -hmm. like trickle up to them and hopefully it will be improved agreed yeah yeah and i think some extremists would argue if we use the case of you know, the extreme brachycephalics like pugs and English bulldogs that are in desperate uh, need of outcrossing and new new genes being brought in. Um, some extremists would say, we just need to ban these the breeding of these dogs in their current form. And that's really, really extreme. But the moderate version isn't working. Mm-hmm. You know, asking the kennel clubs to change the breed standards isn't working. Asking breeders to be a little bit more moderate in what they're producing isn't working. Um, and there's a fight between, you know, welfare bodies and veterinary professionals and traditional breeders who are like, nope, I'm not going to do that because then it won't be this again. There was a paper that came out a couple of years ago on English bulldogs in the UK, you know, almost emblematic of, of the UK, the British bulldog. And it said that all of the British bulldogs within the, um, the UK were derived genetically from just over 30 individual animals. That was the degree of closeness, a degree of inbreeding within the the breed itself in the the UK population. And the scientists that did that study said that genetically, in order to make any improvement to the phenotype, so how the dog appears um, due to its genes, in order to make any difference to the appearance and the physical features of the dog that causes so many health problems, breeding, skeletal issues, spinal issues, um, corkscrew tail, skin folds, everything like that. There was only one way to do it, and it was to outcross with other breeds and bring in some new blood. And the reaction from the traditional English bulldog breeders was, no way we're doing that, then it won't be an English bulldog. Mm-hmm. So there you are trapped in a genetic bottleneck where there's no way out, and it's completely dead end, and thousands and millions of dogs potentially are going to suffer over the next you know, 50 to 100 years, and you've got a way out, which is um, maybe an insult to your purity argument, but you won't take it because you'd rather save your ego or your purity or the lines of, of dogs that you've been creating for such a long time that are shit, that are defective, that are suffering, that are falling apart and having health problems. So there's, you know, at what point does a government... Um, or a welfare body need to step in and start prosecuting people. Well, we're seeing that happening in certain countries. So Germany and the Netherlands, and I think uh, possibly Belgium, brought in some laws around a thing called Qualzucht, which translates as torture breeding. And they basically said that if you produce, if you are breeding animals and the offspring that you're producing are destined to suffer because of physical characteristics that you could have controlled through better and more responsible breeding, you can be prosecuted on animal welfare laws. Wow. That would, you'd think that that would be 
a huge improvement as well for the backyard breeders you know too mm. you know like the the people who are just kind of throwing maybe breeds together or throwing dogs together that that don't have good genetic characteristics healthy characteristics yeah and that hopefully that's a deterrent for irresponsible breeding in, in that way as well not just for the the akc level ones or yeah. something so we've covered pedigree slash purebred like what it means breed standards um health testing and the the designer dog issue as well i think and then we also kind of talked about that saying that as on a biological level mixed breeds will be or hybrids will will be the healthiest like on a biological well genetic variation is good yes yeah producing producing clonal populations of anything tends to mean they're less healthy or they're less resistant to disease yes so because they have a bigger gene pool the chances are is the offspring are going to be generally more healthy yeah they're going to have the ability to get out of a, a problem if it arises so you know if you have in a wild species you have you know a massively varied gene pool and it's been under natural selection and some new disease comes in you might only have like 10% or 3% of the population that are inherently resistant to that disease just by chance, just because of some of the genes they have, because we've maintained genetic variation. And therefore, you know, the, almost the entire population can be wiped out, but that 3% remaining can bounce back and create the population again. Where you have, you know, dogs or any domestic species that have been bred to within an inch of their lives with like for like for like and closely related animals all the way along, you have less variation. So when some disease problem crops up in the breed and when it's um, propagated through breeding, like that stud, you know, popular stud example, where you're literally flooding the, um, the gene pool with, you know, very few breeding animals' genes, then the entire population can very quickly all inherit the same genetic health problem. So it doesn't need to be an infectious disease. It could be resistance to an infectious disease or it could be an inherent genetic disease like a bone deformity or a heart defect or a brain problem or whatever but where you have uniform genetics and where you have propagation of that those genetics on a mass scale due to who are the popular breeding animals within that that we're controlling you have a recipe for disaster in terms of creating loads of genetic health problems does that make sense Yes. Yes. And I think so relating that back to dogs and mutts specifically. So not designer breeds, not purebred, but the the run of the mill, you get them from like a Texas shelter. I'm speaking about Aldi yeah. specifically. You know, who knows what's in him, you know, but overall healthy dog rescue on the whole it sounds like they are going to be healthier genetically. But I want to know where temperament can come in and behavior can come in. Cause I mean, obviously there's the whole nature versus nurture kind of thing. So it, I understand that in this discussion, we're taking out the nurture part. So, you know, pretend that they had this amazing, great upbringing and, and everything was perfect on that side. As mm. far as the nature part for temperament, can it be bad that some, that these weird mix of dogs are mixed together and and can they potentially have 
temperament issues, basically. Because I hear breeders also breed for temperament, too. Yeah, yeah. And the breed standard does talk about temperament as well, because temperament is an important part of, you know, the function or the original purpose of the breed and whatever. So they do talk about breeding for temperament. Um, but it's not as important often as, you know, the physical attributes. So we do see behavioral problems becoming more apparent genetically in certain breeds. You mentioned German Shepherds getting really skitty, skittish and anxious and, um, you know, Border Collies, you know, being kind of like known to be a bit snappy with strangers or, you know, mm-hmm. things like that. We had the whole issue, which is quite controversial about, you know, Cocker Rage back in the day, where mm. it was said that there was a genetic component to this aggressive line of, of Cocker Spaniels. It wasn't quite proven. Um, so, of course, you can get temperament or behavioral um, issues that are primarily inherited and passed on. Um, genetically from parent to, to offspring. But there's a thing called epigenetics. So you can't, so that is how the environment or nurture influences your genes or your nature. And that can't ever really be separated. So there's always a combination of those things interacting that brings out the genetic predisposition or, 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 um, or problem. Um, in terms of temperament and, and what you can expect of a dog. And I think Carly, we've talked about this before. Um, choosing a dog from a shelter say where you don't really know you don't have a pedigree oh the dog doesn't have papers how will i know what it's like well it's not rocket science because you know albie is a hound isn't he yeah and something hound mix yeah you know you know being a hound owner what to expect because it's not about what breed he is or what papers or lineage you have as documented evidence you can tell by his appearance and his demeanor and his temperament and by hanging out with him what type of dog he is. And here's where the snobbery of breeds gets in the way again. It's like, oh, well, my dog's pedigree, therefore, you know, he's going to be far more predictable in terms of what to expect. Well, maybe if you're asking a dog to do a really, really niche and detailed and um, exact job that they're bred for, you know, a pedigree version of that will probably do better than a slight crossbreed or one with, you know, some of that, those genetics in them. But actually, most of the time, for purposes of choosing a healthy, happy pet, identifying the type of dog that suits you in your lifestyle is far more important than identifying down to breed level what you need. And I think I, I often joke about like this obsession with breed as people are, we live in its consumer culture. And you talked about it earlier of like, you know, we want extremes and we want things, uh, the, the most doggy dog or the most, you know, um, Dachshundy Dachshund or, you know, this kind of thing. We live in a consumer culture and I always talk about people are obsessed with like what brand of dog they have. Mm. And they use it almost as a status symbol or that I'm a, I'm a Shiba Inu person. You're all crazy. Um, <laughs> <laughs> I have mixed views on Shiba Inus and their owners. I do like them, but I have many funny stories of trying to treat Shiba Inus. They're quite a willful little dog. So I, you know, I'm joking, Shiba Inu owners, but you know, you chose, you chose an odd, an odd choice, but people are obsessed. People are obsessed with brands of dog mm-hmm. and they think that, oh, if I stray out of like, you know, I'm not going to go to the rescue because then I really don't know what I'm getting. That's bollocks. Like you do know what you're getting because you should be getting a type of dog that's suitable for you. And a, you know, an American foxhound crossed with a, a blue tick coonhound 
is still ultimately a hound and it's still probably an amalgamation of those two breeds that isn't too separate or too different from what each of those breeds would have been on their own and it's also then where the nurture comes in is you shape that dog whether it's you know from age eight weeks you got it as a puppy from a breeder or whether you got it from the shelter age three with a couple of little little behavior problems you still train it and shape it and socialize it and, and produce you know a good dog that is fairly predictable in terms of its temperament and, and its behavior so i don't buy this thing that you know pedigree dogs are the only ones that you can predict in terms of temperament you can predict a total much by kind of seeing what it looks like and what it's been bred with what you think it's been bred with and then observation and developing a relationship with it and, and working out if it's a dog for you yeah i think a lot of people are and i think it comes back to bad bad news travels quicker than good news and mm. you get obviously you're going to have those extreme situations whether you go to a breeder or whether you go to a shelter there are always going to be those stories of people who have adopted a dog they've brought it home and it's a complete behavioral mess and they can't work with the dog and either the dog had to be put down or returned to the shelter it's always a very traumatic story and I think people get hung up on that and think that is the majority of dogs from shelters and that is absolutely not true it's possible in very extreme rare cases it is definitely possible but it I don't think it's a majority Mm-mm. I think it's an no. extremely small percentage of dogs who have extreme behavior issues from shelters yeah and I yeah. think and you screen for that too the shelter should know yes what those issues are and they should be able to counsel you on that before you adopt okay and how I are we getting off I think <laughs> I think we need to round this out. Yes. I, we've discussed so much. Good place to stop. <laughs> Full stop. Well, thank you so much for coming on. And if people want to find you, follow you, listen to more about what you have to say about the topic, where can they find you? Uh, so my website is drseanmccormack.com. And on social media, on Twitter and Instagram is probably the best place for conversation. I am that vet Sean, all one word. S-E-A-N. Sean, not the American way, <laughs> the Irish way. <laughs> Perfect. And then for our info, if anyone wants to connect with us, we are at With a Dog Podcast on Instagram, TikTok, uh, Clubhouse, and our Facebook is With the Dog for the page. And then if you want to join our Facebook group, it's I'm With the Dog. And I think that's about it. Thank you again, Sean, for all of this info. It's always lovely speaking with you. Always, always. overruns time. <laughs> it's always the highlight of Thanks my week. Thanks for having me. Yeah, thank you. <laughs> all right, we'll see everyone next week. Bye. 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 All content on With a Dog Podcast is for informational purposes only and should not replace professional advice, treatment or diagnosis by a certified veterinarian, trainer or behaviorist.